we, we have this beautiful doctrine of the image of God from Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28 that give us a transcendental reason and justification to fight for racial equity in the present day, that all people uh, have the fingerprint of God upon them and have inherent dignity and worth. And we need to unpack that for the 20th century, for, for, for a nation that is the most racially and ethnically diverse one in history, and what that means for us. But we also have other theologies, the theology of suffering that, that, that comes out of marginalized and oppressed churches, especially the black church tradition. So, so to take a look at your bookcase. Who are the pastors and the theologians and the authors who you're listening to who are Christian? And if it's predominantly white, because what is time, it's beyond time to diversify that because in particular, uh, the black church tradition has a lot to say about how to maintain faith and hope in the midst of injustice. Hi friends, it's Brittany Moses, and you're listening to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast, the podcast at the intersection of faith, culture, and mental health, where we get to dive into expert insights and the realities of those with lived experience to help us live more insightful, connected, and wholehearted lives. We understand that the views shared here are respectively held by each individual and is not a substitute for professional care or an alternative to seeking personal help from a clinician or provider and is ours to discern. So sit with us. You're listening to episode 30. Welcome back to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. So glad you could join me for another episode. I'm just going to dive right into this because today we're having we're having a, cha- a challenging conversation, but we're in challenging times. If you're listening back on this, we are right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic and um, a lot of civil unrest going on with racial injustices with George Floyd. Currently, there are protests breaking out all over the country and all over the world. And uh, this conversation about race in America is a long-standing one, but it is really being brought out to the surface right now. A lot of people are wondering what they can do during this time, how they can help, how they can advocate, or even just trying to gain more understanding and awareness around what we're seeing. So I wanted to take this time to dive into that conversation. And with me to expound on this, I have Jamar Tisby. And he's a believer, historian, writer, and speaker. He serves as president of The Witness, a black Christian collective, and he's the co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast. He's also currently writing his dissertation as part of the PhD program in history at the University of Mississippi. And he recently published The Color of Compromise last year, a historical survey of the American church's complicity with racism with practical suggestions for moving forward. I understand that this can be a sensitive topic for some people, but I'm fully of the belief that just because something is a sensitive topic, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it. And some of you who are listening might feel like this is really tugging at your heartstrings. And so I just want to encourage that nothing that's said is meant to shame anyone, right? I'm really hoping that we can sit in the dissonance, right? We can sit in the discomfort and allow it to refine us, allow it to stretch us, allow it to grow us so that we can actually begin to build on convictions and actions toward reconciliation when it comes to the racial history and challenges that are in this country. And the other side of that truth is that we cannot heal. We cannot reconcile what we refuse to face. 
So my challenge is that we continue to lean into these conversations with grace, that we do not run when we are challenged with hard truths, and that most of all, we pursue justice and mercy with hearts motivated by genuine love. So without taking up any more time here, I'm going to hand this over to my conversation with Jamar Tisby. All right, Jamar, it's so great to have you. How are you doing today? I love that you put today on the end of it because it definitely changes from day to day, even hour to hour. But um, as we're recording, I feel pretty good in terms of the rhythm of the day. Probably the most productive thing I've done in the past couple of weeks is just to regularly exercise. And so coming off of that right now and Mm. feel probably better than I will most of the day. So good for now. Yeah, that's good. Like those those coping skills, you know, we're, we're definitely all trying to find ways to cope right now. Um, for those who are tuning in maybe later right now, we're just in a very turbulent climate, um, especially a turbulent kind of racial climate. And we're in the middle of COVID-19 and um, there's been shootings, there's been protests, there's been all kinds of political uh, dissonance. So, you know, I was just curious, how, how are you dealing right now just I don't know on an emotional level or mental level how, how are you dealing with everything that's going right now I feel like a lot of us need to debrief and decompress I'm glad you mentioned coping because I'm trying to be a lot more conscious of that now I think in the past before I really started um, thinking about the the inner journey and the way that external factors can cause stress and affect me Mentally and emotionally, I would have done a lot of different things that were coping, but I wouldn't have named them as that, whether that's, you know, having a drink at the end of the evening or sort of overindulging in food, whatever it might be. Um, So I'm trying to be really conscious about community and connection, especially in the pandemic that was already sort of a challenge, but now um, making sure that I'm regularly in touch with people, um, whether it's just a chat, laughing is huge. So sharing memes and gifts, um, and then also praying even on zoom. And then, uh, in addition, I don't know, I, 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 for me, writing is cathartic. And so when I can write, then, um, I can put words to this sort of inarticulate feelings that are, that are raging inside me. And, and not only put words to them, but get them yeah. out. So those are some of the ways that I'm trying to work through this. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, and I think that is the benefit of writing. Um, someone who's a writer myself is that it really is a space to detangle um, and kind of pick apart all of these pieces that are jumbled up in in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit. And so I, I feel you. I feel you on those coping skills there. Um, and, and as far as the work you're doing, uh, I know we just kind of jumped in, but I know for those who don't know you, you know, you write about issues of history, race, justice, and Christianity, which is an amazing intersection. So, I mean, just... It's so encouraging to hear that someone's doing this type of work out there. And you approach these topics in your book, The Color of Compromise, which congratulations on that. Um, I would love to hear more about 
kind of your background up to what you're doing today and what led you to write the book, kind of what, what, what it's touching on and would love to then circle back and tie into how that's playing out into the current climate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like many millennials, I think I wear a lot of hats. So if I had a business card, it would read more like a book with all the different roles. Um, yeah. So I'm working on a PhD in history at the University of Mississippi, so studying race, religion, and social movements in the 20th century. I am, as you said, the author of The Color of Compromise, and so an author. I also write uh, regularly for news outlets from uh, my organization, The Witness, a black Christian collective, which is a, um, a nonprofit, a faith-based multimedia company that I'm president of. So I write there and a few other places like Religion News Service, Washington Post, New York Times. I saw that. Yeah. You're doing the things. <laughs> uh, it, it, we're, we're in a moment here where a lot of people are asking questions about racial justice, how we should yeah. think about it. And so my particular work focuses on the history of uh, the U.S. Christian church and race, really racism. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the basic idea is, um, it's called the, the, the color of compromise, the truth about the American church's complicity and racism. And a lot of people talk about well, why, why, why those words compromise and complicity shouldn't be stronger. Like people are, you know, Christians have often been at the forefront of white supremacy and racism, mm -hmm. not just complicit. Um, well, I say those words for the simple fact that we tend to think of people wearing white robes and hoods and burning crosses on lawns or standing out and lynching as quote unquote the real racists, which then right. lets everybody else off the hook. So if you're not doing those extreme things, then you're not part of the problem is the assumption. But what I'm trying to point out in the mm. book is that the most egregious acts of racism come within a context of compromise. And so um, I talk about the um, four little girls killed in the uh, 16th Street church bombing in Birmingham in 1963. Oh, yeah. And how um, when that event occurred, there was already a neighborhood uh, or, or the town had already been nicknamed Bombingham because so many similar acts had taken place. There was a neighborhood called Dynamite Hill, uh, which was a black neighborhood that was uh, subject to racial terror. And the idea is that you don't get a 16th Street Birmingham church bombing without all of the events leading up to it where white Christians in particular could have chosen to spoke, speak out and protest and, and um, oppose this kind of a thing. Instead, they chose silence and complicity and compromise. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what, and you kind of were already diving into it, like, what has been the historical role of the church and race kind of overall? It it seems very polarizing, and for, it's mind-boggling to me because I'm just like, I don't understand. You know, we believe in the, you know, same God of love and justice and people being made in his image, and you see all these terrifying things happening, and it and it's baffling that we're not, united in ways that I would think that we would be. Um, but it sounds like what you're saying is like, this is historical in nature. And so I'm wondering, like, what are some examples or what is the overall 
I don't know, what has the overall attitude been and why all the dissonance? Yeah, so I'll backtrack a little bit because I didn't even really answer your question about my background. No, you're um, good. I'm here for all yeah, of well, it. It all weaves together. So for me, as I talk about it, it's really hard to separate because I became a Christian in high school through the ministry of a white evangelical youth group. Um, and so I had the very sort of prototypical conversion story right down to praying the sinner's prayer, right, and accepting Jesus into my heart. And that was the way I was taught the faith, and I was always a racial and ethnic minority, and in some cases, literally the only yeah. person of color, black person in the room. And so um, these, these ideas about the intersection of, of race and religion and race and Christianity have been very personal and experiential for me. Um, and I would say that I've had a lot of sort of difficult and formative experiences. Um, after college, I became a teacher in uh, the Teach for America program. And I grew up in the Midwest, but they placed me in the Mississippi Delta, which is where I live to this day on the Arkansas side. Mm -hmm. And um, in a USA Today article from 2019, it named the county I live in as the fourth poorest county in the US. So mm. you can imagine, you know, I'm working at a, a public school and it's, you know, 99% black. Uh, most of them qualify for free or reduced lunch, which is a, a federal me measure of poverty. And um, I'm yeah. having like all of the issues that come with uh, concentrated and generational poverty uh, walk into my classroom on two legs every day. Uh, so that's single parent household, incarceration, food deserts. Um, uh, economic and climate racism, all of that stuff. And I'm asking questions of my faith. What does my faith have to do with this? What does my faith tell me about justice? And I'm finding there aren't a lot of resources in the sort of white evangelical spaces that I was used to. And so that was the beginning of a journey of looking at the history. Um, the second part of that is just being in the deep south. So so people like to exceptionalize right. that. <laughs> that yeah, part. yeah. People like to exceptionalize the South as this as you know, that's the racist region <laughs> in our country. But I would remind folks that this latest tragedy with George Floyd was in Minneapolis. Uh, I would remind mm -hmm. folks that that Ferguson is in Missouri, in, in uh, St. Louis in the Midwest. I would remind folks that Eric Garner is in New York. And so um, it's, it's what I always say is bigotry has no borders. Uh, so, so it's certainly not confined to one particular place. What I will say is different about the South is how tangible uh, the racial history here is. So I yeah. live literally in cotton country, uh, right on the Mississippi River. This is where they had the plantations. This is where they had uh, enslaved people. This is where they had sharecropping. And so there's no way I can sort of pretend uh, not to, to, to know the history of the U.S. when it comes to that stuff. Uh, we have all these Confederate monuments. Uh, we have all these historical sites like uh, where Emmett Till was killed and uh, just not too far away is Memphis where MLK was killed. So those are the reminders that, that sort of got me interested in history. Now I'll pause so you can ask another question, but you asked for historical examples, which I can, I'm happy to, to give you a few. And, and just show, you know, some complicity there. Yes, please, let's, let's do it. <laughs> so one thing, I mean, folks gotta understand, like the church has been all wrapped into the, what we see as the racial status quo today. And, and as you look at the history, most of the time it's, it's a very disappointing one. 
where Christians had mm -hmm. opportunities to step up, Christians had opportunities to protest, and they didn't. And immediately people are saying, oh yeah, well, they, yeah, they, yeah, they did. There were Christians in the abolition movement, there were Christians in the civil rights movement. Yes, but they were normally black Christians and other Christians of color, and they were always the minority. It was never this sort of mass swell of people who, who claimed the name of Christ who are engaging in these things, especially when it comes to white Christians. This goes all the way back to the very beginnings when Columbus is writing his, his, his journal entries in the 1490s and he's assessing Native Americans based on how similar to Europeans they are and therefore how, mm -hmm. how, how, how they could culturally assimilate. It goes on, uh, one of the examples that always stands out to me is that in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which was the legislative body of, uh, of the Virginia colony at that time, it passed a law saying that baptism would not emancipate uh, a person of African, Native American, or mixed race descent. And that stands out to me for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is 1667. So this predates the um, Declaration of Independence, uh, the ratification of the Constitution. Yeah. So this stuff is around even before the political entity known as the United States comes into existence. So it's, it's, there's, there's no, <laughs> we can't make America great again when it comes to race because there was no period in history mm -hmm. when we got it right. Um, <laughs> right, right. And then the other reason it sticks out to me is because you have this intersection of race, religion, and politics. So you have this political entity passing a law about religion that's based on race, which tells us you can't disentangle those. You can distinguish between them, but if you talk about race, you're also talking about religion and politics and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's that's the part that that I think I'm struggling with when I'm having these conversations, if I could just speak personally. Um, because to me, I feel like this should be a, these types of things, you know, murders and senseless killings just out the, out the back. Um, it should be a justice issue. But for some reason, when I'm bringing it up, I'm seeing it come up as a partisan issue. And I don't understand, I'm like, I, I don't understand that, mm -hmm. you know. Um, for example, I know a lot of times, you know, just speaking bluntly about, like, you know, the conservative evangelical mm -hmm. church, you know. Um, and so when I start talking about um, race and black issues and justice, it automatically gets pegged into this, like, liberal, progressive mm -hmm. movement, you know. And mind you, I haven't defined I haven't defined to this person, you know, anything about my background or values politically or anything, but it automatically gets pegged yeah, into that. You automatically get categorized. <laughs> I mean, I I was I've been writing about, I've been posting about these issues this week and someone messaged me and they're like, "Well, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, blah 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 blah." And then I and I was thinking I never said anything about mm -hmm, the movement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All I did was all I was doing was raising awareness on injustice, but I automatically got pegged into this and called ungodly oh, for standing oh, up for justice mm -hmm. because it's so partisan, it's so polarized and um 
And so I'm seeing one side that's saying, no, this injustice is this systematic injustice isn't true. Um, these racial issues, uh, there isn't really a disparity. It's over exaggerated. It's just because it's what the media is no. showing, right? And then I have you have this other side that's saying this is a lived uh-huh. reality. Oh, you know, research is saying that a black man is three times more likely to be murdered. Uh, you know, this is not. This is not just something that's being picked out by the media. It's something that's gone on for years. And I don't understand why people don't just believe an entire that's community's what, stories. So yeah. I'm, I'm struggling with that as a Christian dealing with these subcultures mm-hmm. where it's like, I'm a Christian. Okay, right. So I believe in justice. I believe everyone's made in the image of God and life matters. And then I get to this subculture where there's black white church or evangelical church versus whatever. And then there's a divide when it comes to these issues. And and it's not everyone. It's not everyone. I don't want to just throw that out there. Um, there are a lot of allies and I've actually been seeing more reasons to hope than not to in my own circle. But I, I don't I'm there's all this polarization yeah. like you're saying it's all intertwined as soon as you start talking about justice and black lives you're automatically pegged into something political oh yes uh, that's what gets me heated up um, especially in a moment right? <laughs> like now right so I put out a tweet yeah. the other day that was like you know I said um, all of this time and energy that we have spent on the people who are screaming that critical race theory is the biggest threat to Christianity while black blood literally cries out from the ground. And and meditating on that. See, what they like to do is label you and put you in a box and then dismiss you. Um, Yes, that's what I'm experiencing. So so similar but but different example in seminary. Whenever there was an idea that went against the sort of status quo, the line you had to toe, it was labeled liberal. And then you didn't have to follow it because it was heterodox and untrue. And they did that, the specific application is they did that with black liberation theology. And so the only time I ever heard about black liberation theology in seminary was as an example of what not to do. This is how you get theology wrong. Right. Never, 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 never paying attention to the historical, social, political context out of which black liberation theology arose. Then, on top of that, you have white evangelicals who are more discipled by Fox News than the Bible. Uh, Just stepped on some toes there. George Floyd is dead. (laughs) Breonna Taylor is dead. Tatiana Jefferson is dead. Eric Garner, uh, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile are dead. Tamir Rice is dead. Rodney King uh, uh, experienced incredible trauma that may have led to his early death. Emmett Till is dead. And so um, I don't, I'm not nearly as concerned about um, coddling people who who cannot see that racism and white supremacy is literally to this day killing us and as and you'll 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 have a better insight on this than i do but it's it's the weathering too that comes uh mentally and physically to black people and other people of color because it's not just uh the kneeling on necks that kills us it's the it's the fact that Mm -hmm. in the past two weeks we saw george floyd's murder we saw Christian Cooper accosted and, and had the 
cops called him in Central Park while he was bird watching. We saw Ahmad Arbery mm. murdered in in Georgia, and in those in, in in that time, we've had to bear the weight as a people of that stress, of that knowledge, of the protesting. We going out in the middle of a pandemic to to try to fight for our lives, even though we're risking our lives at the same time. So you don't have to be killed yeah. physically. We're dying slowly from this. And, 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 and folks want me to tiptoe around that fact? No. What needs to happen is you need to catch up, boo-boo. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Jamar, they're saying that you're only... What's the, the, what the divide is, is the media, <laughs> not sure. race, not racism. The divide is the, what the media is showing you, and they're creating the divide of something that doesn't actually yeah, exist. yeah. This is the rhetoric that yeah, I'm yeah, hearing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and and listen to the people <laughs> on the ground. Maybe we can speak to and that. You don't have to listen to the voices right now because if you go back 50, 60 years, we've got the same conversations happening. And so this is not yeah. a modern political divide. This is not the quote-unquote fake news. Uh, you, you could go back to Ida B. Wells talking about lynching. And the real reasons for lynching, because the, the stated reason in the media, which was white supremacists and reinforcing a racist view of black people, was that all these lynchings were taking place and were justifying because black men were raping white women. When actually the exact opposite is true. You have more often white men raping black women in positions because they have positions of power and authority and, and nobody's going to touch them in terms of, of um, arresting them or, or convicting them. And so she's highlighting the real reasons. It's, it's economic competition. That's why her friend, who was a grocer in Memphis, uh, was killed, is that their grocery store, which she co-owned, was actually doing better than the white grocery store just down the block. And they couldn't have that economic competition, so they come up with a bogus reason and shoot them in the head in a rail yard north of Memphis. And then, when she writes about it, run her out of town. So if folks want to say, oh, it's just... It's just the liberal media that's making this up. Okay, you don't trust what's happening in 2020? Fine, number one, listen to the people on the ground who, who aren't journalists or anything like that. They're just people fighting for their lives. And number mm -hmm. two, go to the historical record. Go to the historical record, especially by academic historians. So books published by university presses like University of Mississippi or, or, or Princeton University Press or whatever it might be. And, and read the people who actually do this for a living and go to the primary sources and see what it's really about. So yeah, I got no patience for that. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey guys, we're gonna get right back to the conversation because trust me, I know you'll want to hear the whole thing. But I quickly wanted to share with you this exciting new partnership I have with BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. One of the questions I get asked a lot are how you can go about starting therapy. A number of you are located around the country and even around the world. And as helpful as I often like to be, sometimes I find myself limited in being able to provide the one-on-one -on -one resources that you need. Well, I'm happy to say that one option I can share with you today is BetterHelp's online therapy and counseling services with licensed mental health professionals. 
Since I know a lot of you guys want more faith-based counseling as well, I'm even more excited to share that they also have another service called Faithful Counseling, which has licensed Christian therapists and counselors who are certified by their state, where you can receive licensed counseling using your computer, tablet, or mobile phone through video calls, phone calls, or text messaging. So I use BetterHelp Therapy. I've been using it myself, and it's been super convenient, you know, between school, work, and really just having someone to check in with on a regular basis has been so important for my own mental health. So what happens is when you sign up, you'd be matched with a counselor in 24 hours or less, and you can securely message your counselor anytime, any day, you know, day or night, and get replies within 24 to 48 hours. BetterHelp also has group in our sessions every week where you can learn in groups directly from licensed counselors on multiple topics like relationships and ways to overcome anxiety. Uh, I also found out that financial aid is available for those who qualify and you can apply for financial aid during the sign up process. Hello. Additionally, listeners of the Faith and Mental Wellness podcast like you get 10% off of their first month using my specific link in the show notes below. And like I said, I know a number of you are around the world. BetterHelp is available worldwide. And if you want to get started and get matched with a counselor within the next 24 hours, I have links to both BetterHelp and Faithful Counseling in the show notes. I should mention that it is not a crisis line, okay? If you are experiencing a crisis, I have a link to all the crisis lines by country in the show notes as well. Check it out and let me know what you think. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, it's it's really hard. For me, it's really hard when a, a whole collective of people are trying to tell you their stories and that they are being re-traumatized and then it's painful and that this is generational trauma and then it's in all of this and you just have this whole other side of people who are saying this is not real, this is not true and this is not really just happening I mean, to you. People, you know, it, that dismissiveness, yes. it's very painful. It's extremely painful because every time we relate these stories, we are telling our pain, right? We're reliving that trauma in, in some sense and, and we're being vulnerable. And then to have that, you know, thrown back at you uh, through gaslighting or stonewalling. Um, gaslighting. That's exactly. It's, yeah. It's so frustrating. And, and, and it's never the first time for us. Right. Like we've, it's, it's the 50th conversation that we've had, that we've had to unpack and explain our identity, our experience, and why this is important. Now, what's so interesting, the analogy I think of is, remember this, when, when the pandemic first popped off and uh, there was this huge wave of how to wash your hands. And, yeah. and, and there, were, there, were, there were people who would occasionally say, well, how have you been washing your hands? Like, well, like how dirty have y'all been until this crisis came about? Yeah. And I feel like a similar way with racism and, and racial justice is like now there's this clamor for resources and people trying to understanding i'm like well what was the status quo for you like i mean how comfortable were you in your little cocoon where you didn't have to think about race like this um because people of color and black people have to think about it every single day I was I was always saying we've had these conversations in our households whole our lives. whole lives. So to see it go public or it's feel like we feel like, oh, it's finally getting air, you know, it's finally hitting the surface. 
you know, but it's something that's been under the surface and that conversations we've been having in our houses Which all our lives. Which means they need to listen. There's two different conversations happening in two right, different households. Right. right, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things, you asked me how I'm feeling. Well, I'm very impatient. Um, I'm very impatient because we've had a really long time to learn about race in the U.S., and how it functions. But there are so many, particularly white evangelical Christians, who haven't done it. They just, they haven't. It hasn't been a priority. Um, and, and, and if you're white, um, race functions like a light switch. You can turn it on and off. Because if you turn it off, you can still live the, a comfortable life. You know, you can still have your house, your job, your entertainment, and not think much about racial injustice. Um, for for black people and people of color, it's more like a smoke detector, where it's always on, and it's always sensitive to to changes around it, right? So, so yeah. with that being the case, there are a lot of people, a lot of white people have turned that switch off and, and just now turning it on because, oh no, there's fires in, in the city. Windows are being broken. Uh, people are talking about this more. But it's exhausting. Um, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. That's the word I keep using. <laughs> exhausting is a word I keep using because a lot of us, one, we're having to cope through everything that's going on right now. Because when we see these deaths, we see our brother, the kid, we, you know, our neighbor, our dad, it's our, sad. you know, it yeah. feels very close to home. So there's that. And then not only that, but you're also at the same time trying to educate everyone around you about what's going on. Um, and then you're also trying to remain productive right, in your right. work life. And it's a lot at one time. Um, I help, I'm a TA for a sister to sister course at UCLA, where it's a, it's a black women in academia course. And we just had one of our meetings yesterday and, you know, emotionally on edge. And um, it's really interesting to see how there are different reactions, yeah. you know, yeah. going on. but. I really wanted to quickly read this based off, just coming out of what you said, I saw this the other day from Brian Stevenson, uh, the lawyer from Just Mercy and the like. Um, And he said, it's not just anger over what happened to George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Aubrey. It is anger about continuing to live in a world where there is this presumption of dangerousness and guilt wherever you go. I'm 60 years old and I've been practicing law for 35 years. I have a lot of honorary degrees and I went to Harvard and I still go places where I am presumed dangerous. I've been told to leave courtrooms because the presumption was that I was the defendant and not the lawyer. I have been pulled out of my car by police by, who, by police who pointed a gun on me. And I can just tell you that when you have to navigate this presumption of guilt day in and day out, and when the burden is on you to make the people around you see you as fully human and equal, you get exhausted. And I wanted to read that because I think it was just a, an example of what you're saying. You don't get to turn that on and off. It's always on. You're always walking through trying to prove yourself as less aggressive, as not guilty. And sometimes you can do all those things and still find yourself as the George Floyd. And that's the part that that you were saying. You don't just get to turn it on and on and off and see it when you want to and hide it when you don't. It's always on. And 
And it has... Especially for black men in America. Yes, yes. Um, so... Which I'm a, I was raised with six brothers, okay. so <laughs> this hits, hits close for and, me. And one of the things I'm learning is, 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 is the toll that takes on black women too, right? So my, my mother yeah. raising two black sons uh, has that constant stress every time we walk out the door. My wife gets on me all the time if, if, if I leave the house and don't tell her exactly where I'm going. Um, and it's not just, oh, I want to keep, t it's like, no, as a black man in this society, anything could happen and I need to know how to reach you, find you, where you last were, et cetera, et cetera. Me raising a black son, um, all of those burdens too. And so um, there's a particular, ra racial violence is gendered. Um, uh, there's a book by Danielle McGuire called At the Dark End of the Street that, that goes into that really hauntingly, but, but really informatively. Um, but it, it, it affects everyone and there's a particular kind of threat that, that um, black men are perceived as having. And uh, I remember, you mm -hmm. know, like I was saying, exercising at the top of the show. If I ever pass a white woman, like jogging, my eyes are down, I'm as far to the side as I can get without running on the grass and uh, do my best to sort of shrink and make myself as non-threatening as The possible. shrinking, right. There's a shrink, you're shrinking yourself in the room so that people don't see That's you right. as too much right. in a way, yep. too aggressive, too overbearing. And there's material consequences to this too, right? Like, like it, it's not just how we feel, it's the impact that it has on our lives. And so the racial wealth gap between black and white families is big and growing, depending, yeah. It's huge. If you look up the numbers, it's it unbelievable. unbelievable. At least 10 times the wealth, the, the median white family has at least 10 times the, the wealth of the median black family. And that gap is not gradually getting smaller, it is getting bigger. Especially when we have economic calamities, like the one we're in the middle of right now. Uh, that impacts black and brown people disproportionately, but especially uh, black people who um, historically have been locked out of so many opportunities. So people want to know what to do Use your budget to battle bigotry, is what I say. And, and honestly, yeah. like, you know what it's like at a predominantly white institution. We need to be getting money over and above the regular pay scale because of all of the invisible labor that we do. Um, all of the conversations that we're having with students of color right now. Um, all of the writing that we're doing, all of the, you know, frantic podcast editing so we can get this out on time so we can possibly help people that we're doing. Like, that is um, unremunerated labor, you know? And so, yeah. I can't, we cannot have a serious conversation about racial justice unless money is part of the conversation. Money's not everything, but it's definitely a thing when we're talking about this deal. Yeah, because there's a lot that comes with um, just very low socioeconomic status, including health disparities, you know, and so there's a lot there. And I think going off of what you're saying as well, as far as, you know, um, the protesting and whatnot, I think what's also getting frustrating is no form of getting out this message or protest seems to be acceptable for people, you know, um, people get upset when, you know, Colin Kaepernick takes a knee. No, you shouldn't protest like that. Okay, now people are in the streets protesting. No, you shouldn't protest like that, which they're also mixing up the genuine protesters with looters. Can we just separate that those are two different people? There are some people who are taking advantage of this 
to do their to do what they're doing and it's not always the protesters um but i have a there's a whole other discussion on looting <laughs> that's a whole other well, topic okay to because um, again this is this is sort of the, what what news media bubble you're in uh because yeah will portray it a certain yeah, exactly. way exactly and, sure. and, and and this always happens this happened in the 60s when there were uh uprisings and whatnot and so uh, a lot of people will point to the property damage and violence that's taking place because of the protest without pointing to the reason for the protest in the first place. And so what lo gets right. lost in this conversation is the reason why people are marching in the streets and, and literally risking their lives in the midst of a pandemic is because yet another black person was killed by police officers. And this is, again, of course. Yeah, don't miss right. the don't why. Don't miss the why. So you, you don't like the property damage and the violence? Okay, then let's let's fix policing if that's possible, because a lot of people are calling for even the abolition of police. But but let's do some things about the fact that um, police officers seem to be able to murder black people in the streets and get away with it. Do something about that first. Yeah. Okay. That's like that's the source. You're looking at the symptoms. We need to look at the source. Yeah. Um, and people are getting frustrated because it's built up because it's like you're we you know been trying to talk about these issues you know you talk about it online it's like don't talk about it this way or don't divide this way and then again you know someone takes a knee don't take a knee go out and protest don't protest it's like people are getting frustrated as well because it's like you're you you're being stifled at every end and you're being gaslit and bypassed and people are, are getting tired of that and they really just want accountability <laughs> accountability for these issues that's all that people are asking for that's at the, the minimum when you bring up because the black lives matter hashtag was birthed not in 2014 when mike brown was killed it was not birthed in 2012 when trayvon martin was killed it was birthed the year after when his killer was acquitted and that's when mm. they went on facebook and said black people i love you you matter someone else picked that up and said black lives matter it's the accountability you'll you'll, you'll even remember during uh the robin king uprisings uh that that really popped off after the acquittal of the officers and so black people by and large are 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 not asking for um anything special special, special yeah. treatment that's the thing that why do they want to be treated special nobody wants to be treated special people just want fairness and justice and accountability yeah, exactly. at the minimum exactly. <laughs> um oh my gosh I, so we could go on to so i already know we can bridge to so many topics i think though i do want to since you do have such a valuable intersection at the church i want to talk about this really quickly like why are people so afraid to see culture and color um i you know for me i'm you know i'm a west coast girl i'm a california girl and it was really interesting for me to see the different the regional cultural differences you know i went i went to a church my home church was very diverse i saw every color los angeles is very diverse and so i kind of grew up in this diverse church where everybody was on board for kind of community activism and justice and racial justice so i'm i'm grateful for that opportunity but then i also lived in dallas for a time and i had visited some other cities on the east coast and i saw like very segregated churches and that was like mind-blowing to me <laughs> um you know and so 
I'm see I see the segregation just not you know physically sometimes but also ideologically where it's you know um, why are you talking about color don't focus on race the issue is not race it's souls it's sin um, so focus on sin not color because that's what changes people and of course we know that like obviously really it's that transformation from the inside out that people do need it's not completely wrong um, but kind of what is the issue with this rhetoric I saw a quote the other day that was like the devil wants you to focus on skin Jesus wants you to focus on souls and I was just wow. like why are we so polarizing as in the body of Christ? Like, why are we so, it's this or that. Why can't it be both? They do this with mental health also. Is it spiritual or is it mental? Mm-hmm. It's both. Um, you know, what is the issue with this rhetoric? Because this is what I continue to see be the overarching message that dr- tends to just kind of drown out this issue in a way. Like, we should be focusing on unity and not race and souls and the color blindness yeah, you know it's a multi-layered issue one of the things is white supremacy operates on a playbook and we've got to wise up to how it operates and one of the ways it operates is through invisibility denial and normativity and so if you're white mm. the entire structure of society is catered to you Back in the 70s, when Kodak wanted to get the lighting right, they had a standard photograph that they would circulate. And they would, they would look at the skin tone on this person. Well, of course, the person is a, is a white woman, right? And so um, I just read an article the other day that for the first time, ballet slippers are widely available in brown and darker skin In color, tones, yeah. Right? In skin and color, so, yeah, um, I saw that. Uh, you know, those are those are sort of trivial pop culture examples, but they're not, right? Like they, they're. We still don't get it. We still don't have band aids, right. by the I way. Mean, just that you know, there. you got to get a clear <laughs> kind or something. Um, and yeah. and and when you're like skin tone band aids for for, for, for who? skin tone, right? <laughs> exactly. And the changes that do occur come through protests, come through people raising the issue, right? So so when you live in a culture that is catered to you, you don't think of yourself as white, because it doesn't say, you know. The, the white people food section, it says Latino food, Asian food section in the grocery store, right? It doesn't say uh, European theology. It says Latin American theology. It says Asian theology or whatever it might be. Um, it only gets labeled if it's non-white or non-European. And so what that does is creates an invisibility of race for white people such that when you point it out, oh, you're white and here are the things that come with that the advantages that you have with that, you, you instinctively and reflexively reject that because all your life you've been, you've, you've been taught that race isn't a big deal because everything has, has catered around your race. And so that's part of it. The other part of it is uh, with Christians, the way white Christians tend to think about theology, it creates this artificial separation between the, the, the spiritual and the material. And so in the um, late 18th century, there was a missionary named Francis Lejau with the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. And he came over to North America to evangelize uh, indigenous people and Africans who were, who were brought over as slaves. 
And the few times he met with success and actually converted them to Christianity, when they got baptized, he would, he would have them recite baptismal vows that essentially said, you are undertaking the sacrament of baptism purely for the sake of your own souls and not out of any desire for freedom or emancipation. In other words, mm. he was saying, God can have your soul, but we own your body. And there was this separation between the spiritual state of people and their uh, physical and material condition. And that has persisted, but it's distinct to race. So let's not get it twisted. When it came to prayer in schools, Bible in schools, abolition, uh, uh, not abolition, uh, rather abortion, Christians were all fine with getting political, all fine with getting socially active. But when it comes to race, now, all of a sudden, it's a sin issue, not a skin issue. We don't need to change the laws. We don't need to protest in the streets. But understand, it's very selective throughout history when that happens. Yeah, it's a selectivity that's getting to me, as you're mm -hmm. saying. <laughs> you know, like we, you know, there's, you care about life kind of in all these other domains. But then when it comes to race, that's not a, like you said, it's not a skin issue. It's not a skin issue. It's a sin issue. Um, and so through what you're saying, because I'm just thinking, you know, in having a lot of diverse conversations, you know, I do have some friends or people that I know and they're like, well, you know, they've had really hard lives, right? Um, they're white. They've had really hard lives, you know, experienced trauma in their lives, experienced abuse, um, may not be doing well financially. And they're thinking, well, I if there's privilege, I haven't felt any of it. You know, um, I'm not experiencing any privilege because I've had it hard since I grew up. My life is in shambles. Um, even that term white privilege is triggering for a lot of people. And I think there might even be a misunderstanding of what that is. And you did break it down about how you're – race is kind of automated, you know, and it's only salient when you're not white, the, your surroundings. Um, so yeah, what, how, how do you separate that from someone who's like, well, I didn't yeah. have it easy. I struggled too. I had trauma too. The best explanation I've heard of white privilege is that privilege doesn't mean your life was easy. It means that your race didn't make it harder. And so okay. white privilege speaks to the fact that you may have grown up poor, you may have lost a parent, you may be chronically ill, you may have all of these difficulties in your life. But in the midst of all of this, all of that, your race did not make it harder for you. So if you can imagine mm -hmm. having all of those conditions, whatever factor you can name, on top of being black, that's what we mean by white privilege is because you don't have to face the, the, the assumption that your body, that you are a threat because of your, your body, because of your skin color, right? Um, that in, in the midst of all of that, you don't have to face uh, the, the, the fear, the trembling fear of getting pulled over and that a routine traffic stop may end up fatal. Um, you don't have to live with the the history which has a momentum on up to the present of race-based child slavery jim crow segregation lynching discrimination on the job etc etc so 
it doesn't mean that your life was easy. It, it just means that your racial identity didn't make it harder. In fact, it may give you certain advantages in, in particular areas. Um, so I just think that's undeniable, right? Like most people, if they're, if they're not black, wouldn't choose to be black because they see or they understand in some sense what we go through. Um, and, and that speaks mm-hmm. to the privilege uh, that comes with, with being racially identified as white. Thank you for explaining that and breaking that down. And, and based off of you saying that, coming off of that, um, so we've talked a lot of, about about a lot of distinct. Uh, rewind. We've talked about a lot of distinctions and where there is some polarization and some dissonance there. But I'm seeing for the I don't know for me for the first time in I don't know years I'm actually seeing a lot of cross-cultural support as well in ways that I haven't seen before I mean when you see the protest it's not just majority black people anymore like it's just a conglomerate of different races coming together and that's really really cool to see and I guess for those who are wanting to be allies, for those who are trying to educate themselves more on these issues, and especially those who are in the church, um, and even maybe pastors listening who are like, you know, hey, I want to really bring my church, I want to really bring them along into this conversation and, and really open eyes on this. Uh, what would you say are some ways the church can bridge this gap on the conversation about race? Like, Maybe where does that start ideologically or, you know, where, how, can, how can someone who genuinely wants to help and create change begin to bridge that? Let me, let me first begin with sort of a, a, a philosophical framework. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a framework I came up with called the Arc of Racial Justice. And you can read about it in the last chapter of The Color of Compromise, but it's an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. And these are three areas of racial justice that I think we need in order to have a holistic approach to the issue. So on one level is, is building awareness. So that's doing things like listening to this podcast, reading books, watching documentaries, etc. We need to, I said earlier, white supremacy has a playbook. We need to understand that playbook. We need to know what's happened historically, what's going on in the present day with things like policing and mass incarceration. So we have to build our knowledge. A lot of people are already up on that or doing that or or realize that's an issue. Um, I would probably say, well, what is the next step in my awareness? Uh, Who are the voices that I've been hesitant to listen to because somebody labeled them as too progressive or too liberal or or whatever, but but might they have some things I can learn? Um, Then another Mm -hmm. aspect, and and I'm not calling these steps because it's not like you move from one to the next to the next. They're all happening at the same time and, and, and they never really end. But, but another aspect is relationships. And so uh, white evangelicals love the relationships part because that's the whole racial reconciliation movement is that if I am nice to black people, then I'm not a racist and I'm doing my part to fight racism. I'll get to that in a minute. But relationships are an indispensable part of racial justice because the other has to become your brother or sister. Um, you cannot love people you don't really know. And so the relational aspect in theological terms, you know, all reconciliation is relational because when God wanted to reconcile a people, God didn't send a tweet or a memo or a TikTok video. Mm-hmm. God sent Jesus Christ, a real person, so that we could have a relationship, right? 
And in a similar way, we need to have diverse relationships. And, and here's the problem. We focus on Sunday. We think, oh, we need to have our church be diverse. But then Monday through Saturday, our schools, our neighborhoods, our clubs, our lives are not diverse. So that's the challenge for people. It's like not just Sunday, what initiatives you can do so that for an hour or two in the week, you are around people who look different. But how are you actually building that into your entire way of life so that, that, that your network, your social network of, of friends and colleagues and acquaintances, that's racially and ethnically diverse and you can build meaningful relationships. Then lastly is commitment. Because the reality, I hate to break it to you, is all the cups of coffee in the world aren't going to reform police departments. All of the pulpit swaps in the world aren't going to do a thing about the racial wealth gap. And so this is especially hard for white evangelical Christians, but you have to work on a policy level. And I'm just be real straight here. If you're looking around mm -hmm. right now, and you are not reevaluating who you vote for and the policies and the politics you support, just stay quiet. We don't need you trying to be an ally because you're not seeing the connection between the way we structure systems and institutions and the death and the protests that are happening right now. You've got to work on a, because policies, not just people, can be racist. And so you have to work on a policy level too. Yeah. Yeah. And why is being nice to someone of another race and being kind not enough? It's not enough. Yeah. Because you mentioned that earlier. It's like, oh, I'm nice yeah. to them. I don't treat them mean. I don't treat them wrong. So obviously I'm not complicit. Right. Yeah. Um, why, why did you say that's basically not enough? So, so relationships are necessary, but they're not sufficient. And so um, it's not enough being nice to other people because it misdiagnoses the problem. If, if being nice to people is the solution, then the problem is I've been mean to people. I've, I've acted interpersonally in negative ways, which reduces racism to strictly interpersonal relationships and interactions. When the reality is, like that example from the 1667 law that was passed, it is it is policy and legal and politics. It is religious and spiritual, and it is racial in nature. So that, that speaks to the systemic aspect of it. And, and the fact that if you go to, you know, most Christian evangelical universities and colleges, guess at the composition of their board of trustees. You know, take a wild guess. You're right if you, if you said it's going to be predominantly, almost exclusively white. Um, now they're making token efforts to diversify, but that's something that's baked into the structure because as you go to hire university administrators and professors and, and staff, if all the people around you are white, guess what? Without even trying, you're going to continue to hire white people and not have a diverse faculty and staff to deal with an increasingly diverse generation of students. That's an example of a systemic issue where nobody's setting out to be racist, but just by being homogenous and letting the system work as it was set up to do is reinforcing a racist status quo. And so um, you can't fix that just by being nice to people. You got to change the policies. 
Thanks for breaking that down on a structural level. And I want to add to that, that you cannot separate people from their culture. Um, This idea of, you know, well, I'm just going to see the soul. I'm just going to see the person and I'm going to kind of set their culture aside. You can't. Um, It is all interwoven into a person's even cognitively about how a person translates translates the world and their relationships and and everything (laughs) Um, this is something that we learn about in cultural psych so i just wanted to put that out there as well is um choosing not to see a person's race is not the um solution uh because you you can't wipe that away it how we were brought up in the culture we were brought up in and the history that has shaped even the upbringing uh, of individuals all plays a role into that person's personhood. Um, so it's it's about I don't even I don't even like to say making space for it, <laughs> right? Because it's like the space should just be available because we're all human beings and made in the image of God. Um, and different doesn't mean bad. Amen. Preach. <laughs> and one form of cultural practices doesn't mean one is better than the other, or one should be conformed to one way versus the other. So um, with all of that being said, and in kind of closing here, uh, Jamar, how does the gospel play into all of this? Bringing it back to the main thing, how does the gospel play into racial injustice and the church? Mm. Well, and, you said it. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we have this beautiful doctrine of the image of God from Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28 that give us a transcendental reason and justification to fight for racial equity in the present day, that all people uh, have the fingerprint of God upon them and have inherent dignity and worth. And we need to unpack that for the 20th century, for, for, for a nation that is the most racially and ethnically diverse one in history and what that means for us. But we also have other theologies, the theology of suffering, that, that, that comes out of marginalized and oppressed churches, especially the black church tradition. So, so to take a look at your bookcase. Who are the pastors and the theologians and the authors who you're listening to who are Christian? And if it's predominantly white, guess what? It's time, it's beyond time to diversify that because in particular, uh, the black church tradition has a lot to say about how to maintain faith and hope in the midst of injustice. And that's a lesson that we all need to learn. And on top of it, uh, we are united by the Holy Spirit. So, so it's stronger than biology. It's certainly stronger than melanin. Uh, what unites us is stronger than what divides us. And so one thing I always say is that reconciliation is not something that we have to achieve. It is something we must receive. It's already been accomplished on the, Christ, on the cross. When Christ said, mm-hmm. it is finished, he meant this too. He meant we already are brothers and sisters if we would just realize that and lean into it and have a mature faith that speaks the truth in love. Uh, uh, just read the book of Ephesians for all of that. It breaks it down. And so, um, you know, the church really has an opportunity to be a witness here. Uh, in Matthew 5, uh, Jesus is, 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 is calling us to be cities on a hill, uh, to be a light to the world. And this is a moment, a moment of real darkness uh, in terms of uh, racial injustice. And, and if you don't step up right now, you're missing the opportunity to witness the love of Jesus Christ, to witness to the unity uh, that is possible in the church. And what is going to happen is, is, is this problem 
will be perpetuated. And should the Lord tarry 50 years from now, historians will be looking back on this moment like they're doing on the civil rights movement and saying, where was the church? Where were Christians? And I don't want to miss that moment. Amen. That is. <laughs> you know that's right. I just want to leave that there. That's a lot. And just let that uh, digest. Uh, we kind of joke and say, like, when our grandkids ask about 2020, we're going to have to say a prayer first. Because, uh, <laughs> woo, but we're going to make it. We're going to make it. Thank you so much, Jamar. How can those who are listening stay connected with you in the work that you're doing? If you loved everything that you're hearing or it just sparked some interest or it was further educational, please, please, please check out his other resources because this is the work that he's doing. You know, he was talking about who's on your shelf, who are you listening to, you know, and you might be like, I don't know. I don't know where to look. I don't know where to start. Start with Jamar. Look at his stuff. Look at what he's sharing because um, he has a lot of resources. And so how can how can they stay connected with you? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, and especially for folks who've heard some things on this uh, episode that they're like, oh, I'm not sure about that or I want to learn more. Consider this the beginning of a conversation. And these ways I'm about to uh, list are, are ways that you can continue the conversation. First, you can follow me on social media. That's where I put all my hot takes. Uh, I'm at Jamar Tisby on Twitter and Instagram. I also have a Facebook page, an author page, uh, Jamar Tisby. Uh, in addition, visit our website, thewitnessbccbsnbravo.com. And um, we started a new initiative called the Witness Foundation. We're trying to raise a million dollars annually to train and fund black Christian leaders. That's at thewitnessfoundation.co. You're just doing a little bit. Just, just, a, little just bit. a little. Just like you. Yeah, just, 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 like just a little you. bit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I am so much. grateful oh, for being on this me show. Me too. The work that you're doing, Likewise. especially on mental health. Yeah is so critical right now. I'm Thank finding you. it all intersecting the justice, the mental health, the church, the like all of it. It's all like all the worlds are colliding. And so I knew we had to have this conversation and I'm so grateful for you and grateful that uh, for your voice and your willingness to step up during this time, like we were mentioning earlier, not only are you educating, but you're also having to cope through all of this as well mm -hmm. and remain doing what you're doing in your own life so i do not take that for granted that's where i lean on your resources yes yes mm -hmm. awesome well you guys check out his stuff and um be sure to share this episode you know especially for those around you in your community who could just use maybe some more education or awareness and uh thanks for tuning in until next time <laughs>